You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Paramount, Warner Brothers. Are they in talks for a possible merger? We're going to break down what we know on any talks between the two biggest media companies in the world. We'll get the outlook for the tech sector as the Nasdaq 100 bounces back from a sell-off that knocked it off record highs. Denny Fish of Janice Henderson in the house. Plus, Apple ramps up production of its Vision Pro headset, setting the stage for a launch by this February. The one story that everyone's talking about, Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount have held talks about a merger, according to Bloomberg's sources. Who else to turn to on the details than Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who leads our screen time coverage of global Hollywood? And Lucas, what do we know? Well, we know that that Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav had lunch with uh, or had a meal with Paramount Global CEO Bob Backish and that that there have been sort of informal conversations between the two companies also involving Sherry Redstone, who sort of controls Paramount. You know, it's early. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery can't even do a deal like this for a few months because of some complications of or, or some tax issues related to the deal that they did. Uh, but look, we have been assuming that there would be greater consolidation in the media business over the last few months, and a deal between these two is one of many scenarios that's been proposed. I don't think this was a huge shock to anyone. I think people may be a little surprised by how quickly it came or at what point they were thinking that maybe there'd be some discussion in spring of next year. I think that's exactly it. It's- isn't it, Lucas? Everyone's been deciding how we're going to see consolidation. Everyone's been eyeing, you know, the ongoing narrative that maybe Paramount's going to be selling off some of its assets. But ultimately, have we sort of opened Pandora's box here? Can it be closed that these sorts of companies actually are a going concern in their current scenario, in their current forms? Well, it's it's a good question, and some of that is really up to to Sherry Redstone, right? She has to decide what she wants to do with her family company. Um, that can mean that. Uh, that she sells it for pieces. They have explored a sale of, of BET. They've been approached about someone who wanted to buy Showtime. Uh, or she can try to sell the whole thing, or she can try to buy something or hold on. You know, most people assume that things are going to get worse before they get better and, and may never be able to get better. You know, the linear TV business is just moving in the wrong direction. Uh, but that's what happens when a family controls a company. They get to decide what they want to do. 
We want to thank you, Lucas Shaw, just all across this story, as always, and throughout what's happening in the world of Hollywood. We're now joined for some more perspective on an analyst who's kind of been calling this joining together of two of some of the biggest companies, media companies in the world. She's over at Needham Senior Entertainment and Internet Analyst is Laura Martin. You've got a hold rating on Warner Brothers Discovery shares. You've got a buy rating on Paramount. And actually, back in November, you were thinking about how these two juggernauts could sort of perhaps be bigger than the sum of their parts so they come together. Do you still stand by that? Do you think they could be better together? Yeah, I think they'd definitely be better together because both of their streaming assets at Paramount Plus and HBO Max are subscale, but you put them together, they would be bigger than Netflix or the Disney Plus bundle with Hulu. So that would make them, they got way too much debt over at Paramount. When you put these companies together, especially if you issue equity to do the deal, suddenly the enterprise isn't as over-levered and we've got a world-class cost cutter at Warner Brothers Discovery. So we think they could get a billion to two billion dollars worth of cost cutting if you put these companies together, which would delever the enterprise much faster than either company can delever standalone. So we think these two companies are worth more than the sum of their parts. Importantly, Amazon and Apple are DC contacts that would not be allowed to buy Paramount or anything else really, but not be allowed. And because Paramount owns CBS, which is a broadcaster, Disney can't buy it because they own ABC, nor can Comcast buy it because they own NBC. So the limited, the number of people that are big enough and could buy Paramount, including the CBSS, is sort of limited right. to Warner Brothers. It's sort of the only bidder. So on that point of, of Paramount having something that Warner Brothers doesn't, CBS, a traditional broadcast network, in the Axios report, they made this idea that Warner Brothers executives see that as a reason that it might pass the regulatory test, that they are acquiring something or would acquire something that they already have. I agree with that. And also, regulators really care about the number of local voices. And CBS Broadcaster, in the hands of Paramount, where the debt is $15 billion and the equity is $10 billion, which actually has the risk of financial distress, which means CBS might cease to exist, is they, should, they would be happy, I think, to put it with Warner Brothers Discovery, where the whole enterprise becomes less leveraged overall, which increases the chance that CBS can survive as a local voice in every market. The, I, I think back to Sun Valley earlier in the year, the same existential question still is there. How do you make any streaming platform profitable? And in that respect, Laura, how would this deal achieve that? So everybody's raising price, right? We have streamflation. I mean, streamers are taking streamflation, their Streamflation, nice. Streamflation up 30 to 50%. So everybody's raising price and you must cut content costs. You must, um, and, and they all are doing that. So we're getting higher prices for consumers and lower original content. So the consumer's getting squeezed in this, but Wall Street and the consumer are often at odds and it is time to play Wall Street's game because these stocks are down 60 to 70% because Wall Street is moving capital out unless you consolidate, which drives earnings for share growth, or unless you get profitability in your streaming assets. What other configurations do you see, Laura? If this is to you the, the better outcome, what are the other areas? What asset sales are you anticipating? We keep on talking about it around Paramount, but sometimes market narratives get ahead of actually what would really occur. So, you know, we think that the streaming, so right now um, consumers have five streaming platforms and the biggest frustration for consumers is it feels like no matter what they're paying for, the content's on something they're not paying for. Super frustrating for consumers. 
So, you know, I think at the end of the day, there are three big streaming platforms total. Amazon Prime, my opinion, will be one of them because Amazon, the entity, never needs to make money on its video service. So Amazon Prime winner. I would guess that the Disney bundle winner, although I would like to see Apple buy Disney, but can't be done so long as we have the current administration because big is bad in Washington, D.C. right now. So then that's the third. A lot of people will put Netflix in that camp, which means there isn't room for Peacock, which is owned by Comcast. There isn't room for Paramount, Warner Brothers. But it just tells you there should be more consolidation in this group, in the larger entities. Well, all you, you've just done is, is list off every subscription that I have in my household. <laughs> and you raise a good point that that's a lot. I mean, let's go back to the, the point that content is king, right? And, and, and this deal, we'll do Apple and Disney on another day. <laughs> Paramount and HBO Max, from a content perspective, I think of The Last of Us being my favorite series of the year. Is there a content advantage to doing this, Laura? Yes, absolutely. One of the largest film, li largest and high quality film libraries, sort of on planet Earth, is that Warner Brothers library. CBS, which was the number one TV network, okay, with NBC taking like six years for the last 50 years, has the largest television library. So putting these two libraries together, you end up with sort of an unparalleled, enormous IP content library that you can then make sequels from or license to other people. So yes, the library would become best in class, and that then feeds your streaming app, which would be the combination of HBO plus Paramount Plus. So you'd get a really big streaming app and you would have the option to license content to other streaming apps if you wanted, like Netflix, if they wanted to pay a fortune for a couple of your Mission Impossible movies or, you know, ER, some of your, you know, great NCIS, some of your great CBS long running TV shows. Uh, Needham, Zora Martin, you have an encyclopedic knowledge of what to watch, uh, <laughs> literally, as well as good insight on this deal. It's great to have you on the program again. OK, there's just a few days of trading left in 2023. The market winners of the year have been tech stocks, with the Nasdaq 100 outpacing the S&P 500, a 50% or more than 50% gain year to date that puts it on track for its biggest annual jump going back to 2009. Joining us here in San Francisco on set, Denny Fish, portfolio manager on the global technology and innovation team at Janice Henderson. Uh, if you go back two years or five years when I moved to the Bay Area, or with respect to 1995 when you moved to the Bay Area, technology comes out on top. It, will it continue to come out on top is the question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question. And I, you know, given the secular trends that we have in place and the foundation that we've laid over the last 25 years, I firmly believe that's the case. And the reality is if you look at the tech sector in general, um, look at, you know, now at this point in time, by the end of 2024, if you look at the largest spenders on CapEx globally, seven out of 10 of those are gonna be technology companies. If you look at companies that are spending the most on R&D uh, across the global economy, six or seven out of 
the top 10 globally are tech companies. The scale that's required to compete on an ongoing basis is at an immense level that continues to advantage the, the magnificent seven, let's call it. But then in addition, there's so much un- innovation that's being unleashed in areas like artificial intelligence that are taking the handoff from the generational value creation we've seen in cloud and SaaS and other areas of the economy. I mean, AI seems like the easy catalyst to point to, though. If I punch MRR into my Bloomberg terminal and just bring up the top performers on the NASDAQ 100 year today, NVIDIA has been the standalone top performer. I get that story. But next, you have names like Meta. AMD's not far behind. But then DoorDash, Tesla, Broadcom. Is there any commonality in AI or something else? Well, there's some commonality. Most of those companies that you just mentioned, in one form or another, are instituting AI into their business, either to sell it directly to consumers or businesses, or to enhance their value proposition. Uh, so it's, it, I, I view AI as an enabling technology that companies and the long-term winners are actually going to leverage in ways that create durable competitive advantage, and that's not going to change in 24. Now look, the market finally woke up to AI in 2023, and I think as we look forward, what we have to think about is now this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. And we actually have to start to see the revenues start to come through. Uh, you know, things like if we think about Microsoft, for example, and Copilot, you know, they're a natural winner with Copilot. Do we need 15 Copilots? Yeah. I don't think we do, you know, as consumers or enterprises. And so we're really going to see companies start to separate in terms of actually monetizing AI as we go forward. Denny, to that end, is it then earnings that we have to become obsessive about? Is it other guides that throughout the year, is it product innovation and and launches? What's going to dictate when we decide which are the winners and losers? Well, I I think it's all of the above. Uh, And we're in that position now where the financial performance really needs to come through for the companies that are getting an AI halo effect. Mm -hmm. But what I would also say is, you know, if we look at, you know, you were just talking about Micron, there are actually parts of the, the technology market that have actually underperformed, but where there are really high quality businesses. And, you know, memory is an area that, you know, it's, you know, there are three providers globally. It's been in the most significant downturn we've seen in many years because of the overbuild during COVID. Uh, But now it's slowly starting to improve. And, you know, the most important thing for stocks like that is when things start to improve. And that has implications across both memory providers, as well as uh, semiconductor capital equipment providers that actually uh, provide the equipment to, to build new fabs uh, to support demands in memory that are being driven by all the things that have been driven historically and now a little bit of a kicker with, with AI. And then another area I would point to too is analog semiconductors. They're great businesses. They're GDP dependent. They generally grow at a multiple of GDP. They have higher operating margins and returns than the average company in the S&P 500. And they grow a multiple of, of them. And they've really lagged. And so this could be an opportunity with rates coming down, yeah. uh, with a better global macroeconomic backdrop, that you start to see some areas that don't necessarily get an AI halo, but are actually great, great technology businesses. I mean, isn't it wild that 
68% year-to-date increase on Micron is an underperformance when, of course, it is when you're looking to 232% increase on the year of an NVIDIA or a Meta that's like more than doubled. I'm interested in who ultimately should be being avoided, if anyone, at the moment. What's interesting is I go to like who are the worst performing companies on year-to-date for the NASDAQ 100, and it's, it's PayPal. I'm interested as to whether, you know, is fintech and those sorts of names still going to be under pressure? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And, you know, PayPal is unique in that it's a classic example of what I would call a value trap, at least um, over the last couple of years. Uh, The company was deemed a winner through COVID. uh, But what's happened is the competitive advantages for the company have significantly dwindled. Uh, The take rate for the company has um, come in. And you've seen margin pressure in, in, in the business. And generally... That is a recipe for stock underperformance because two things happen. One is the financial performance over the near-term period is actually less than inspiring than what investors are looking for. And then investors start to discount the stock and the terminal value because of questions about what the stock is going to be worth over the next decade. And that's what we've seen with names like PayPal. Denny, it's always great to get your perspective on individual names, on the sector as a whole, pushing forward. Denny Fish, we look forward to seeing you in the new year of Janice Henderson. Stay well. Meanwhile, coming up, Apple ramping up its production of its Vision Pro. We're going to be breaking down everything you need to know next. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
Time now for Talking Tech and first up, US semiconductors. They've continued to flow to Russian military-linked companies this year. That's despite an export restriction aimed at cutting them off. Now, shipments of the semiconductors actually surged in the first half of the year, many of them traveling through Hong Kong on their way to the sanctioned country. Texas Instruments, analog devices emerged as the biggest makers of those chips. Plus, the Biden administration is weighing a tariff to increase, well, an increasing of that tariff on Chinese electric vehicles and other goods in an effort to make U.S. clean energy products more competitive. The talks are part of years-long deliberations that began shortly after Biden took office. And artificial intelligence startup Anthropic is in talks to raise $750 million in funding. That's at a valuation of as much as $18.4 billion. Now, the potential deal is being led by Silicon Valley venture capital firm Menlo Ventures, a startup founded by OpenAI Open AI Defectors, focuses on responsible AI ed. All right, another top story. Let's turn to Apple, gearing up for its launch of the Vision Pro. Joining us down to break it all down is the man with the scoop, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. We think February for a launch. What do we know? Hi, Ed. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Apple has ramped up production overseas in China of the Vision Pro headset. This is going to be the first new product category from Apple since the Apple Watch launched in the beginning of 2015. Uh, right now, the plan is to get units uh, stateside and ready to put into customers' hands by the end of January. And they're ramping up uh, for a retail launch uh, late January, early February timeframe. So by February is what we said. So this is coming sooner uh, than I think most people had anticipated. When the Apple Watch came out, Apple said that would launch in early 2015. For Apple, early 2015 was pretty much the last week of April. So this is coming quite a bit sooner than I think a lot of people um, expected. So we're only a couple months away from this headset. Pretty significant launch for Apple, but it's going to be a bit muted. I don't think they're going to hold another media event to introduce additional functionality. I think users will either have to experience that on their own through the media, but of course, Apple will probably have a ton of videos online on YouTube, on its website, tons of stuff on their website to indicate all the new features coming to the headset that weren't shown back in June at the developer conference. Uh, they're already working on a subsequent update to the software on the headset, Vision OS 2.0. That'll come out at the tail end of 2024. So this is a big priority right now for the company. Big priority, getting their staff trained up to be teaching us consumers on how it really works, Mark. I'm interested in, at the same time, we know that Apple's still having to deal with potentially, well, already taking the Apple Watches off the shelves and showing that they can't be sold during the holiday period or the back end of it. Have we got any update on that? Uh, actually, today uh, is when they're going to be removing the Apple Watch from its online store. That's going to happen at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific. Uh, the Apple Watch will be removed. The reason they have to do this is because they need time to actually import those Apple Watches, actually ship those Apple Watches, get them into the hands of consumers so you have that three, four day window before the ban actually comes into place uh, on the end of Christmas Day on December 25th. And then those are going to be removed from sale at Apple's physical retail channels uh, by December 24th, so Christmas Eve. And all indications still show that you'll be able to still get one at Best Buy, Target, Walmart, what have you. Just not at official Apple stores. Mark Gurman, always on the news. We thank you so much. Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount, in talks, according to sources, about a possible merger. Meanwhile, let's just get some of the analysis, the takes on this potential set of talks that we're hearing about. We spoke with Needham Entertainment and Internet analyst Laura Martin. Let's get another take from Rich Greenfield, Lightshed Media and Technology Analyst, who, well, happens to be wearing a bit of an asset of Warner Brothers Discovery today. Of course, they made Barbie. I'm interested in, Rich, whether you think that sort of content, Barbie plus what Paramount has, would be a good equation together. Putting content together always makes a tremendous amount of sense, having scale and content. But 
Honestly, I couldn't disagree more with um, the analyst's uh, viewpoint before. Putting two linear TV companies together, uh, well, one plus one does not equal two. As we've seen, when you put Viacom and CBS together, you've ended up with 0.5. Uh, when you've, you know, put those two companies together, putting Warner Media together with Discovery has led to, you know, maybe 0.5. Uh, you put these two now combined companies together, you're not going to get more than two. You're going to get a lot less because at the end of the day, the problem is linear TV is collapsing. Advertising is never getting better. It's in secular decline for TV. Viewership is in secular decline. Cord cutting, meaning cable, satellite, these virtual cable companies like a YouTube TV or a Hulu Live, the overall number of subscribers are in secular decline. People are moving away from bundles of channels yeah. to streaming services. Those are not fixable things. And so when 70% of your company is linear TV, that's Warner Brothers Discovery today, and 150% of your earnings at Paramount today are from linear TV, putting them together doesn't solve the problem. The way you solve the problem is dramatically shrinking your linear TV business, scaling it down dramatically, not trying to enlarge it and try to take out some cost. It means literally cutting 70, 80 percent of the employees at these cable networks, at these broadcast networks. You have to Rich. dramatically reduce cost. Uh, let, let's put to one side, OK, whether or not you think the deal should happen. Can the deal happen? Would it ever pass the regulatory test? Well, you know, that is a great question that I think is not being talked about enough, actually, in the last 24 hours. So thank you for asking that. The reality is, no, I think the odds are actually very slim. But first of all, we don't even know what administration, you know, let's just say this was announced in February or March. Let's just, you know, for the for, for humor me. Um, you wouldn't get approval within 12 months. You would need both DOJ antitrust. You would also need FCC approval. This would be a long, arduous process, um, given a potential shift in the administration. Um, you know, whether that um, happens or not, I have no idea. But the odds that this thing gets approved, I think, would be very difficult um, in a, a Democratic administration we have today, given the way they've looked at horizontal mergers. Mm. And I also think it would be very difficult in a Republican administration, given sort of their uh, dislike of a lot of the traditional media, news media especially. You'd be talking about putting CNN together with CBS News. You know, good luck. Those are not going to be easy transactions. But again, I don't think it's going to get to that because I don't think there's any real story here. I think this is sort of a um, there is reasons why both of these companies want to be seen as merger candidates is because their businesses are in secular decline and they want. They'd like to have some form of M&A happen in 2024. And the reality is it's unlikely. And it's certainly unlikely before April, right? Because Warner Brothers Discovery has got its hands tied in terms of doing any sort of deal post the prior deal that they're still sort of uh, putting together. But Rich, what therefore could happen? Both of these assets, parts of the assets are in play. I mean, goodness, consolidation across the entire industry is in play. Pandora's box is open. Where do we go? What should be sold yeah. to who? Well, I think go back. I mean, over the summer, you probably remember Sun Valley. Bob Iger got up and said, oh, ABC is for sale or linear TV channels are for sale. You know, I think everybody in the media sector is realizing we've hit the point of secular decline. And so everyone's, you know, the, the, everyone is rushing for the exit. You know, that classic like cartoon where everyone's trying to squeeze through the door. Everybody wants to sell. 
The problem is who wants to buy? And I think the investors, I mean, I'm sure if you pull up stock charts on Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery, you'll see both are down on the news. Investors don't like this. You know, more linear TV is not the answer. Anyone who says that putting linear TV and linear TV is going to magically make it better is just wrong. Uh, it's a flawed thesis. These companies need to focus less on mergers and focus more on what is the right strategy. And so the right strategy is not trying to be a streaming company, not trying to be Netflix. It's, it's too late. They can't do it. They don't have the balance sheets or the financials. And so take the content. Take Barbie. You mentioned that at the outset. These companies make great content. HBO is a great content engine. Stop trying to be Netflix. Focus on what you're good at, which is creating great content and monetizing it to whoever wants to buy it. Well, Rich, hold on. Rich, and hold I on. Really one think that's the key. You, you started by saying you fundamentally disagree with Laura Martin of Needham. Her point was that the content's the key. If you combine them, you have a much bigger library of content, making you more competitive against the likes of Netflix, etc. So, so let's go back to basics. One, do you think this is a good well, deal? It sounds like no. And B, what about the content combination? Um, it's a sort of you're missing... You know, she's missing the entire story here, which is sure if you could just buy Paramount, the studio, and combine it with Warner Brothers Discovery, that would be great. I think there would be, as we've written, there would probably be seven or eight potential buyers of Paramount, the studio, if it was for sale. Again, the problem here is not the studio. The problem is, is that a hundred, I want to make this clear, over 150% of the earnings of this company come from. The cable networks, the broadcast, the linear TV assets. So, again, not the content creation vehicle, the linear TV assets. And so putting linear TV assets together is not a smart idea. It's why the stocks are down. This is not just about anyone who says this is about putting the content together is completely missing the fact that what you're actually doing is putting two dying linear TV businesses together and you're not solving the fundamental but problem. But doesn't that make it better at making do a streaming product? TV? Doesn't that make it better at a streaming product? Sure, it would definitely make a streaming product better. Absolutely. But you'd be weighing it down with having an even greater exposure to linear TV, which is in rapid secular decline. So, yes, it adds more content to the streaming service. But then you have to ask yourself, should you actually be in the streaming business or should you be an arms dealer? Sony is sitting out there smiling, making hundreds of millions of dollars of profit. There are no losses. They're laughing at the rest of the industry, looking at how everyone else is just burning black holes in streaming. You don't have to be a streamer. You know, you don't have to. We thought these companies could. And I don't think they can. Peacock is not a business. Paramount Plus is not a business. I think Max, honestly, it's a good idea originally. I don't think the balance sheet and the financial situation is capable. I think they should go back to HBO, go back to something smaller, and just execute on what they can and sell their content. Ballers does far better on Netflix than it did on HBO. Suits did far better on Netflix than it did on Peacock. Like. Do what you're great at. Make great content and stop trying to be a streaming platform if you can't do it. And I think the last couple of years has really proven, and I think the capital markets are telling you, these companies can't do it. And so M&A, right. it makes bankers fees. I understand why every banker is proposing it. And I understand all the leaks and all the trying to get something to happen. 
But I honestly believe you're fixing the wrong problem. The, the problem is the strategies need to shift. Making these things bigger is not the right answer. Rich, Rich Greenfield of Lightshed. We love having you on the show. Thank you. We love you. the debate. Come Anytime. back in the new year. All right, thank you so much. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, tech jobs just aren't what they used to be. It's the focus of today's Tech Daily, and we'll discuss it next with Jessica Kreigel, Culture Partners, Chief Scientist of Workplace Culture. Nice. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Okay, tech jobs over the last decade gained a reputation for being lucrative, comfortable and stable. This year that changed. In several rounds of cuts, Meta laid off thousands of people citing the need for greater efficiency in a tough economic environment. So did Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft and Salesforce. And even in the last couple of weeks, some smaller names have made more trims. Let's continue that conversation and bring in Jessica Kreigel, Culture Partners, Chief Scientist of Workplace Culture. Just a few days left of 2023. That was our summary of the tech jobs market. What's yours? Well, 2023 was a year of transition away from the great resignation and towards the next year, which is going to be an election year. And election years create a lot of dynamics in the workplace that are going to be challenging for both CEOs and white collar workers and frontline workers. Frankly, everyone is going to struggle this next year. I don't think people will continue to leave their jobs and I don't think there will be as many layoffs. I think there will instead be strife and conflict and that will be what we have to deal with next year. Okay, so next year, 
conflict potentially. We have an economic environment that, well, where is it right the pendulum has shifted? We've got people ultimately feeling that they were empowered as employees. Now we've got AI plus the fact that people are running to run tighter ships. What happens in terms of culture at these companies, Jessica? Well, Internally, interestingly, this last quarter, we published a state of culture report and we're asking employees what they love about their culture, what they hate about their culture. And for the first time in the history of the report, we saw political polarization rise to the top of the list is what people love and hate about their culture. People love diversity, equity and inclusion. And we also saw woke ideology rise to the top of the list about what people hate about their culture, which means this political conflict happening internally amongst work is creating a problem for managers. It's creating toxic workplaces. And you're going to continue to see that it's going to amplify in 2024. It's been hard to draw conclusions from the jobs data, the jobless data. Next year, we have an election. Everyone is hoping from a consumer point of view that interest rates come down. What does that set us up for in technology jobs next year? Well, it's interesting. We started this year with 1.8 job openings for every job seeker. We're now around 1.4. And that jobs data, the employment reports come out and the economists and leaders say, okay, we're on track. That sounds good. Why doesn't the frontline worker experience it that way? There's the tale of two economies right now. There's the real economy, according to the charts, and then there's the perceived economy that young people have today. They're looking at the price of gas. They're looking at the price of groceries and they're frustrated. And the issue isn't necessarily, is there a job? The issue is, even if I have a job, can I afford to live? That frustration is increasing unionization efforts, for example. You're seeing a lot more union activity than you have before. And as a CEO, that's what I would be worried about, is the collective action that my employees might take. The way that I handle that is I get ahead of it. The CEOs who are listening to their workforces, that are making space for people to feel heard, that are making sure that problems that are at the bottom of the organization bubble up quickly so that yeah. you as the CEO solve those problems. Those are the CEOs that are less worried going into the next year. Well, we've actually had some CEOs in tech saying, I don't want to hear you on political divisions. Keep that at home. <laughs> Is that the way it's going to have to go in 2024, Jessica? Well, I actually agree. I think that's fantastic. I don't think that it's appropriate for CEOs or business leaders, middle managers to offer their opinions about political issues in the workplace. That's not the place for that. And when you create a environment where we're debating political issues, you're distracted from the work at hand. And it's just unsafe. It creates a lack of psychological safety. It's unsafe also for business results. Social activism is the greatest threat to American business in 2024. Companies are great at dealing with regulation. Whatever happens with the election, people will adjust. But what they're not great at right now is understanding cultural norms at a societal level. The end zone about what's acceptable keeps moving. You're going to see DEI as a battleground this next year. And CEOs are worried about what do I say? Should I say anything? Mm. Should I not say anything? Is not saying something a problem? And that is going to be the, the main focus for CEOs figuring out next year.
Better have you back then, Jessica Kriegel of Culture Partners. <laughs> Thank you. It is going to be a pretty volatile year, that's for sure. Meanwhile, let's turn now to actually those that are running the businesses, the leaders, the CEOs, particularly of certain startups, in particular, and entrepreneurial. NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center on, on Women Entrepreneurs, in particular, have been running the research, trying to understand really where they're starting to see shifts within the viewpoints of these leaders. Nicola Corsi is with us, Executive Director of NASDAQ's Entrepreneurial Center. You've been running research, ultimately trying to get into the psyche of these business leaders and ultimately what's helping and hindering. What is it at the moment, Nicola? That's a great question. Uh, a lot of the challenges are not surprisingly around access to capital, but we found some very interesting and unique perspectives that emerged in the lived experience of our women entrepreneurs in America. Um, things that are not always uh, well talked about, such as the importance of paying oneself. You know, we have a large amount of disparities with our women entrepreneurs, including rating higher than average in the U.S. around food insecurity and the worry of being able to make it to cash flow break even, which right now is taking about eight years for our women entrepreneurs. But the importance of realizing if they actually pay themselves, it's the fastest indicator of getting them to cash flow break even. The problem is we don't talk about the importance of paying oneself. So this emerging research is identifying some of the mythologies and challenges that we need to get away from and start to really address at a core kernel of what is going to bring vibrancy and opportunity to our new majority of business owners in this country. And Nicola, you are to all intents and purposes a not-for-profit right. that wants to help entrepreneurs entrepreneurs or in other words founders get going that's right and carrying on from our last conversation one of the stories of this year was the thousands of people that lost their jobs at very big technology companies suddenly having some time on their hands mm -hmm. and being able to start new companies is that reflected in, in what you see day to day? Yes, actually, it's really interesting. Some of the things that we didn't expect to see was the idea that it takes a little bit of age to find opportunity when it comes to entrepreneurship. You mean being literally older? Quite literally older. Exactly, exactly. Okay. There is a, a reverse correlation right now of if our business owners are between 40 to 49, they have the highest chances of success in this country, which is really interesting when we think about the typical environment of thinking, oh, you got to be 18 straight out of college, no problems, no challenges to think of, no worries in the world. But it's actually quite the opposite. Our most successful business owners are our ones that have typically 10 to 20 years of work experience behind them. And I think that's yeah. really exciting when we imagine what's possible by looking at a new appreciation of intellectual currency that's being missed in this country right now. And Nicola, what's interesting is you also say those that basically get to success break even quicker pay themselves, value themselves. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, and again, I think that's not often talked about, right? You say, go all in. Uh, don't pay yourself. Wait for that payday that is eventually going to come at some point in the ever possible future. But the challenge of what we find there is that we lose so much market value in that. And it actually impedes the ability for our business owners, especially our women business owners, to be successful. You know, this is the culmination of two years of work that was funded by Wells Fargo. Foundation. And were it not for these 860 women that took us behind the scenes, that helped us see things differently around what really drives success in community entrepreneurs and in the rise of high-tech entrepreneurs, we would never have been able to discover this. It's been one of the reasons we've been so uh, inspired to be able to share this research, obviously on a national stage, including most recently being cited in the annual SEC report on recommendations to Congress. Uh, Nicola Corzine of the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center, great to have you here on the program. 
Okay, Cerberus and Blue Origin compete to buy SpaceX rocket rival ULA. Earlier this year, I sat down with ULA CEO Tori Bruno. Here's what he had to say when I asked him about the idea of being bought. I would never be allowed to talk about an M&A activity as the company's CEO. I've been asked this question twice a year for the last nine years. I have not been able to talk about it then. Can't talk about it now, even if there were such a thing. And I'll also share with you, I'm not a board member of ULA's board of directors. I'm not an owner. I'm just an employee. But you did say, if I were to buy a space business, I'd look at ULA, which is like a bit of a wink-wink. <laughs> I'm just an employee. I'm interested, Ed, ultimately, what is it that they're looking at? What are they seeing? What would hold them back from splurging? It's a great question. It's the government contracts. They see all the money going to SpaceX, and despite the delays at ULA, I think a lot of investors want a piece of that. They're certainly eyeing it. Feels like M&A is just something we're talking a lot about as we end this year. And meanwhile, that does it with this edition of Bloomberg Technology. A big thanks to everyone that listens to the pod. Wherever you get your podcast, check it out. Apple, Spotify, iHeart. And of course, we publish the podcast to all of the Bloomberg platforms. One day left in the week from San Francisco and New York. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.